Welcome everyone to the Arthroscopy Association's Arthroscopy Journal podcast. I'm Dr. Andrea Spiker from the University of Wisconsin. And today I have the honor of being joined by Dr. Mark Safran, who is a professor of orthopedic surgery and division chief and associate fellowship director of the sports medicine program at Stanford University. Dr. Safran was the first author of the article titled Criteria for the Operating Room Confirmation of the Diagnosis of Hip Instability, the Results of an International Expert Consensus Conference, which was published in the October 2022 edition of the Arthroscopy Journal. Welcome, Dr. Safran, and thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you very much for the honor of being asked to join you, Andrea, and happy to be here. So, Mark, to start our discussion, will you please tell us a little bit about your current practice? Yeah, so I, I, I'm a sports medicine physician, first and foremost, uh, at Stanford, and uh, so I do surgery on the shoulder, elbow, hip, and knee, um, but about two-thirds of my practice is uh, hip-related and non-arthroplasty. You've published a number of studies on hip instability in the past. Can you describe for the listeners what hip instability is, and then tell us a little bit more about how you became interested in hip instability? And then to go a little further, can you then tell us a little bit about how your understanding of instability has evolved over the years? Yeah, well, hip instability is something that kind of just is an area that I just started to see more and more. And the more you look for it, the more you see it. I mean, basically, coming to it from a uh, sports medicine perspective, uh, like the shoulder, and even though we talk about the shoulder being a ball and socket joint, obviously it's more like a golf ball and a golf tee, the hip has motion relative to the, uh, the femoral head has motion relative to the acetabulum. And so like the, like the shoulder, we talk about symptomatic laxity. And so some people have a lot of laxity, but no symptoms, and that's not truly instability, that's just laxity. And then there are people that have uh, symptoms associated with it. And we started off actually where uh, it, we were doing some research um, with Stefano Zaffanini and the group from the Rizzoli Institute. They had come to Stanford and we had done some basic science research and we found that the femoral head moves relative to the acetabulum when you intact. And then as we dissected away the soft tissues, the more the soft tissues got dissected away, the more motion of the femoral head relative to the acetabulum. And originally, actually, when we presented that research at the ORS in 2008, most people said that, that came up to the poster said, well, you know, you're crazy, that doesn't really happen. I may be crazy, but that's what the data shows, that the femoral head does move relative to the acetabulum. And obviously with time, people have shown that the femoral head does move relative to the acetabulum in asymptomatic individuals. Uh, Jacques Menetre showed that with professional ballet dancers in Switzerland, and then Josh Harris has shown it with his um, splits radiograph in Houston, and Steve Aoki has shown that using biplanar fluoroscopy that you can actually see in asymptomatic patients as they move their hip, the femoral head does move relative to the acetabulum. And I became more and more interested in it because uh, people were talking about postoperative instability in patients or dislocations in patients, and I actually had a patient that had feelings of uh, instability. And the general concept was, well, with time, the capsule will heal postoperatively, and I think we had done a fairly extensive lateral capsulotomy, which is how I do my hip arthroscopy, and started to become more and more interested in, in this concept of instability than we had done some studies showing that it can exist uh, um, in the cadavers, and then Shane No really took the baton and did some great studies showing that with capsulotomies that there's excessive femoral head motion and, and translation. And then as you go back and look, Wenger had published a paper in ClinOrtho uh, that showed that for patients that they had operated on for la symptomatic labral tears, that 87% had bony dysmorphology, either FAI or dysplasia. And so the question is, wh what about those other 13%? Were they just truly 
individuals that just had lagal tears that were symptomatic or potentially they could have instability. And as I started to see more and more patients that had normal bony morphology, but had clear intraarticular pain, we started to see that uh, they, they had, their hips were more easily distractible in surgery. And then we started to notice different patterns of damage in the joint relative to uh, what you would see with impingement. So thing, and the more you look for it, the more associations we found over time. That's a wonderful history. Now, Mark, in the past, I've also heard the term micro-instability, though I've heard you mention the term instability. Can you discuss what the current preferred terminology is? Well, it continues to be a term that needs to be, I think, better defined. I've always called it micro-instability because, again, I come to it from the, from the sports medicine shoulder world, where if you had a dislocation, that's an instability episode. And to differentiate it from a true dislocation or true subluxation, the term micro-instability in shoulder had evolved. And so in the early 80s, people used to say you can't have instability of the shoulder without a dislocation. But and obviously, we know now that in, in these days that you can have a dislocation, or you can't have instability without dislocation. And I think the same is true in the hip. So to try to differentiate from a true dislocation of the hip, we started to just call it micro-instability, though that's been contentious. And even at the most recent ISHA meeting, I had a discussion with an op- a classic open hip surgeon, and, and he would call what what I call micro-instability, he would call instability, but they would just say you have a dislocation or you have instability, whereas I call uh, in a spectrum, dislocation is the one extreme of, of instability and the micro-instability is another. And I think it's we, we need to have better terminology for for this that is, I think, a subject of study in and of itself um, to get some consensus, but I think consensus is necessary. But to me, what I'm trying to, it's either instability without a dislocation or, or I just call it micro-instability, even though we don't call a dislocation macro-instability. So it seems like it's an evolving concept that we'll stay tuned for in the future. Now, why do you think instability has been such a challenge for us to diagnose in patients with hip pain? Well, certainly uh, examination of the hip in and of itself has been difficult because it's deep. It has a lot of soft tissue envelope. Muscles uh, affect the, the area around the hip. You have you can't really palpate the uh, hip like you can the knee and even the shoulder, you know, lag behind the knee as far as ability to examine for all sorts of things, including instability. So I think the soft tissue envelope, most people generally as a concept feel like it's a ball and socket joint. It's so well constrained that they can't have instability unless you have significant dysplasia. But again, I think as we start to look closer and at the hip and see the contributions of the soft tissue structures, and as we start to look more closely at at instability, I think it's becoming easier to diagnose, though I'm not entirely sure we're going to have the quote-unquote Lachman of the of, uh, of the hip where a single test is going to be able to tell us definitively if somebody has instability kind of like in the shoulder it's it's a combination of some tests that may need to come together to suggest that the patient has um, instability again just because it's a deep it's a deep joint it's a constrained joint and there's a lot between the skin and the and the joint itself uh, that may be a source of pain and that leads to an excellent contribution to our current understanding that you and your co-authors have done, which is this consensus paper. So let's move on to talk about those eight criteria that the consensus conference agreed upon as consistent with this intraarticular diagnosis of hip instability. So first, uh, you discuss the ease of distraction. So unfortunately, there's really no standardized method of measuring this, but it's more of a subjective measure felt by the surgeon. But 
even so, it seems that there was 100% agreement uh, with the consensus group that this was a sign of hip instability intraoperatively. So can you tell us a little bit about how you assess this? Well, that's the thing. In all reality, when we as a group, and again, you had 15 in, live in person there, we had, or by Zoom, we had 15 people that all had said, yeah, it's it's more easily distractible. And we didn't get into the uh, how to define the ease of distraction because everybody used differently. Somebody, one person always puts 50 pounds of force on the hips when he does his arthroscopy and he says, well, if it distracts more than a centimeter, that's consistent with instability in his practice. Another said after they bent the joint when the patient's in Trinelberg and it's more than two millimeters of distraction. Uh, so it, it, everybody uses a different term. Some use a load cell. Uh, for us, on, on the table that I use uh, at Stanford, after we get rid of the gross traction, um, if it's less than 11 turns, fine traction to get the hip distracted a centimeter, then that's consistent with instability. When, and that's just over the years of comparing patients that have and don't have instability. So for, for our number, we went back to look at the pattern of damage and compared the pattern of damage uh, with the number of turns and the ones that I ended up doing plications on. And so we had worked back and figured that it was um, less than 11 turns was the number that we that we used. So there's different ways of describing the ease of distraction as there's different ways of describing the capsule quality is different. So we decided not to get into the weeds of trying to sort out what is the one way to define ease of distraction, but it was, it was consistent. Everybody has some way that they figure out that the distraction um, was easier than the average patient. And I think, you know, any surgeon who does a, a lot of hip arthroscopy will be able to at least have that intra-rater reliability. You know, they'll, they'll understand what seems to be easier than the typical distraction. So I think you're absolutely spot on and, and just saying that this is a one criteria to be determined by each individual surgeon. Second, the consensus group described the inside-out pattern of acetabular chondral wear. So what's different about this type of chondral wear than what we see in, say, CAM-type impingement? Yeah, with the CAM-type of impingement, you tend to see, uh, due, to the, due to the mechanism, you have that so-called carpet phenomenon. So you have the softening of the articular cartilage, the delamination, the wave sign, if you will, and then the true delamination, which tends to occur a bit away from the labral chondral junction. What you're seeing with the instability, and, and again, at, at a more extreme is what you'd see with your dysplasia patients. You tend to see a wearing down, if you will, with the femoral head moving excessively at the rim, it starts to wear down the rim. So it's usually only a couple millimeters from the edge of the acetabulum to the edge of the acetabulum at the label conjunction and it's a wearing down phenomenon. It's not a it's not a thickening, it's not a delamination, it's not a lifting off of the cartilage itself. So next, moving on to the third, fourth, and fifth signs described, these all have to do with the location and pattern of labral damage. So can you describe for the listeners how the location or pattern of labral tearing in hip instability might differ from femoral acetabular impingement? Yeah, so, you know, Martin Beck in his paper on FAI early on in the early 2000s showed that for CAM impingement particularly, the, the greatest amount of damage was anterolaterally and it tended to extend more into the acetabular face, whereas pincer tended to be more global in damage. What we see with, with the instability patterns is straight anterior, so kind of in that two to three o'clock position or straight lateral, so two to three o'clock being anterior. We reference that off of the so-called SOSU or that indentation in the anterior acetabulum or straight laterally, and we particularly see the 
straight lateral pattern around the 12 o'clock area being associated with people with, for instance, a high tonus angle or as to have a roof angle. So again, using dysplasia as your extreme, if you will, of uh, instability, you see this uh, pattern both for the labrum and the articular cartilage occurring straight anteriorly or straight laterally. And Koda Shibata, uh, who was uh, did a two-year research fellowship uh, at Stanford with me, actually broke down the patterns of damage and interestingly comparing our FAI uh, patients with our instability patients. And and that's what and what he showed basically if you're seeing straight anterior or if you're seeing straight lateral you should uh for both straight lateral for labral damage and particularly uh chondral damage it's associated with that inside out pattern and or labral uh chondral separation that uh, again you should be alerted to potential of instability as opposed to uh, fai being more anterolateral and now the sixth item that you mentioned was paraphobial cartilage damage or central femoral head chondromalacia so why do you think this occurs in hip instability and not in other types of hip pathology? So, you know, I, I, I spent a lot of time trying to figure that out and actually um, talking with uh, Loinig about this. He felt that actually the, this periphobial damage or central femoral head chondromalacia is probably the head somewhat maybe subluxating posteriorly and rubbing against the edge of the acetabulum. We actually did a study here uh, looking at it because I was always taught that chondral damage on the femoral head was a worse prognostic sign than chondromalacia on the acetabulum. But I found that those that had this periphobial chondral damage actually didn't do as poorly as I, I thought. I think it's more the weight-bearing femoral head damage that is poor, poor prognostically. And so when we looked at all the patients that I'd operated on that had central femoral head chondromalacia, it was associated with hip instability the majority of the time. And so I think it's a, it's, a, it's a good sign. Others have also noted that. And then we recently um, actually at the time of this consensus conference, we, just, we actually were, had just submitted our paper showing that the that central head chondromalacia is associated with our instability patients. But we think it's wearing off against the potentially the posterior aspect of the acetabular rim. The seventh consensus finding was a capsular defect, and then the eighth was capsular status. So can you discuss briefly how this might present differently in a primary hip arthroscopy setting versus a revision setting? Yeah, so I mean, capsular defect, particularly in a revision setting, should be a big clue if you're doing an arthrogram and, and you see extravasation in the fluid. I think that would be another sign that you should pay attention to that might be associated with, with instability. And I think you know that, that has led to a lot of patients, a lot of surgeons doing closure of the capsule after they do their capsulotomy. As we know, sometimes these capsulotomies heal and sometimes they don't, and even if with, with repair. So I think if you see a capsular defect, again, that I think should be a clue that we should uh, pay attention to it. You also see capsular defects on occasion after somebody's had a traumatic dislocation, though post-dislocation instability is not, it, it is not common. Um, it's pretty rare. Again, I would look for a capsular defect in that situation. As far as the capsular status, Again, it was one of those things just like the ease of distraction. Everybody had a different way of defining that the capsule was uh, poor quality, if you will. Some called it a flimsy capsule. Some said ease of cutting the capsule when they did their capsulotomies. Some uh, noted decreased capsular thickness, either on MRI or, or again, when they're trying to do their capsulotomy. Some defined it as a thin capsule or some even that if they look starting in the peripheral compartment, say there's increased uh, capsular volume uh, in that area and others define it as uh, ease of capsular, uh, ease of resistance when introducing your cannulas into the joint. So again, di multiple different definitions of how people defined 
that, that the capsule was not the standard of what you'd see with a normal patient or an FAI patient, but all noted, uh, or not all, but more than 80% noted that there was a difference in the, in the patients that are unstable versus those that are not. So there were a number of other signs you discussed as a group, but which did not reach a high level of consensus at this time. Can you discuss some of these? Yeah, I mean, I was kind of surprised that the ligamentum teres tearing was not associated uh, necessarily, and the two-thirds of the group thought it was associated with instability, and certainly John O'Donnell has published on this as well, that uh, ligamentum teres tears are associated with thinner capsule, uh, thinner capsule, and again, he thought that was associated with instability. But uh, many people say, well, you have arthritis patients that have ligamentum teres tear and don't necessarily have instability, and I think that was probably why that didn't reach the threshold. There are different arthroscopic instability tests that, that the group, different people in the group used. There was no one uh, test. You know, some people, there were a couple of people that said, well, if when you externally rotate the, uh, the femoral head when looking, there's excessive femoral head translation. Again, not objective numbers, but, but they noticed that. A couple noted femoral head subluxation or gapping with the hip flexed, or they'll do dynamic assessments with flexion and rotation while assessed through the peripheral compartment. But but unfortunately, some of those people were doing it after doing a capsulotomy, so the, the effect and role of that was unclear. And so when we looked at that, ultimately, the exam under anesthesia, you know, there was um, probably about uh, 30% said yes, and about, and about 30, 30% or 25% said no, and then there were some undecideds. A couple of small other areas, it was probably too early to say, there's a so-called drive-through sign uh, that had been described by Dr. Aoki. Uh, some people have noted uh, synovitis um, inframedially and or at, at ligamentaries labral kissing lesion, if you will, at the um, where the labrum and the ligamentaries are close to each other at the anterior inferior aspect of the of the joint. And the reality was, you know, only a few people have seen this or, or talked about this. So a few people said yes, and just a few said no as well. There was a lot of people that just said, I, I don't know. In fact, um, probably about uh, 60, 70% said they didn't know for this ligamentaries label kissing lesion. So it's one of those things that maybe we should look, look for more and, if we, and we might actually see it. So again, it's one of those things that we say, the eyes don't see what the mind doesn't know. And so once this was brought out, and discussed, I do look for it more more often, and I think so do others. And the femoral head divot sign that Ben Dome described again is one of those things that it's we don't see it very frequently. And the question is that, again, there was a lot of people that were unclear whether or not this was um, a sign or not, something they hadn't really been looking for. Well, I think this is a great step for us to at least be aware of these things. And as you said, maybe you know, now everybody will be looking for it more often. We'll have a better idea of what truly leads to or is a sign of instability in the future. So I'd like to just touch on what your thoughts are and how we can use these interoperative criteria to aid patient treatment. So my, uh, the underlying assumption here is that the, the surgeon will already be doing a hip arthroscopy when they identify these criteria that are associated with instability. So would it be accurate to say that the patient has already been diagnosed and offered treatment for presumably some other problem? How then can we use this to help patient care? Well, I think the first thing is to be aware of it. So if you see some of these signs in the hip, then you need to be concerned that the, that they may have instability. And I think you can have instability certainly with FAI. Several authors have shown that when you look at patients that have hip dislocations uh, traumatically in sports, a lot of them have concomitant FAI. 
And so I do think you can have FAI, either CAM or PINSER, where you can get the leverage of the femoral head and neck junction against the acetabulum. But so I, I think that if you're operating on a person and you see these changes, then I think you need to be careful of the, of the capsule and what you're doing with the capsule. So we do know that the majority of surgeons um, in this country and actually worldwide tend to do capsulotomies when they do their hip arthroscopy, um, but not the majority repair the capsule. And so I think if you see these signs, I think you need to be cognizant and careful uh, about the size of capsulotomy you make. And then if you do see this, I think you should um, make a point of trying to close the capsule and protecting the patient. I think you also taking extra care to maybe repair the labrum to try to give some added support for stability of the hip. And if you're doing a a labrectomy, particularly segmental labrectomy, at least give consideration, particularly in patients with more shallow acetabuli or high roof angle or some signs of dysplasia, I think give some consideration to labor reconstruction as well. So now looking toward the future, how can we further understanding of hip instability? And then where do you see our diagnosis and treatment headed? Yeah, I think that I think now that we see it, um, I think we need to study it more. We need to f- figure out what is the consequence of the instability. What is the, you know, there's always the question: if you tighten the hip, can you make it too tight? I think we need to look at those types of things. But I think the ability, I think now that we have kind of a gold standard by which we can uh, reference hip microinstability, question is: can we be better at identifying it preoperatively so that when the patient's going to the operating room, uh, we know that we're dealing with instability and how we need to manage things based on that. So um, again, it's all about identifying these things. And if you treat the right patient, but with the right procedure, then they'll get better. And um, and so I think that when we look at the patients that have microinstability, a lot of patients I see have had prior operations or and many not. But if you address the capsule, as uh, Steve, Aoki, Steve Aoki showed in his series, he used to do capsulotomies and not repair them and had 33 out of 1,000 patients with instability, and he repaired the capsule, the patients get better and they do well. So I think it's the awareness to treat our patients and be more precise in our diagnosis. If we can get there preoperatively as well, that would be ideal so that we know what we're dealing with going into the procedure. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Safran. This has been a, a wonderful discussion and a very important publication to further our knowledge of hip instability in the field of hip arthroscopy. Thank you so much again for joining us. We look forward to what the future holds in our understanding of hip instability. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. I I really appreciate it. And I appreciate uh, uh, the journal for publishing the article because I think this is uh, something that's important that we all need to be aware of. So uh, thank you again very much, Andrea, for, for your efforts. Dr. Safran's article titled Criteria for the Operating Room Confirmation of the Diagnosis of Hip Instability the results of an international expert consensus conference can be found online at www.arthroscopyjournal.org. This concludes our episode of the Arthroscopy Journal podcast. Thank you for joining us. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal. Thank you.